Welcome to the Humanity Leadership Podcast. I'm David Wheatley and we're here to talk all things leadership. Well, hello and welcome to another episode with somebody who I've, I'm going to say is going to win the award for the best name ever. Uh, Dr. Priscilla Archangel is my guest this week. Uh, Priscilla, welcome. Thank you so much, David. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me. We've got a host of things that we want to talk about today, but I try to get people to start off with just the 30-second bio. Give us your work history about uh, and your leadership history in 30 seconds. Sure. Well, I spent the first 30 years of my career in the automotive industry, uh, primarily in a host of global executive leadership roles, human resources, and organizational development. And along the way, I developed a passion for leaders, working with leaders to help them develop, grow, expand their capabilities, because I believe that everything rises and falls on the quality of leadership that you have in an organization. So I decided that after about 30 years of that, I really wanted to expand my horizons and go out on my own. And so we can laugh for a moment, going from a a, a Fortune 10 company, in fact, to a company of one as a solopreneur. But the point is the opportunity to work with a variety of different organizations and helping them to develop successful leaders in a variety of ways in terms of the beliefs, the values, the behaviors, and the priorities of their organization. And I have the opportunity to do a lot of work these days also in diversity, equity, and inclusion. So uh, that's, that's speaking and writing. Well, and, and thank you. I, I appreciate that. It's quite a, a range of uh, going from a large corporation to working on your own. And, um, and that, that, the theme that you're raising, I often talk about is culture is a reflection of leadership, which is what you're talking about, really, isn't it? If we don't have the it right is. leadership or whatever it leadership is. we get, we're going to get a culture that reflects that. That's correct. That's so correct. You and I are in the, the same kind of business. And uh, the reason that we connected was we have a mutual client. Uh, okay. I've been working with for a while and has uh, tapped into your skills around the DEI mm-hmm. world. Um, but I, <clears throat> I wanted to spend the, the first part looking at the diversity, equity, and inclusion side of things because you were in corporate America as a HR exec and an African-American mm-hmm. HR exec and, mm-hmm. uh, and a female African-American. <laughs> all of that, all, all of that, that yeah. yes. <laughs> <laughs> and then you transitioned to uh, doing the work on your own. I'd just be interested what the the differences are in your mind between being the internal resource and being an external resource? Yeah, that's a, an excellent question you've asked, David, uh, because as I, as I thought about it, even uh, leading up to this call, there's a, there are some huge differences. And uh, so one of the things that I thought of is when you are uh, the HR leader in an organization, and I've you know, led a, a whole variety of organizations of, across my um, corporate career uh, from an HR standpoint. But when you're the HR leader, you are able to be the constant driver and intervener on issues of diversity, equity, and inclusion because you see every day in big and small ways how it impacts the organization. And I was able to also lead my HR team who worked at you know, various other levels uh, in the organization in different priorities around diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, I've, I've also held roles where I was uh, the diversity, a key diversity role, driving diversity initiatives across broadly uh, the organization. So 
you see so much more, you see more opportunities, you understand deeply the culture of the organization and how um, you can intervene in it. And then as a consultant, uh, it is more of an intermittent thing, okay? Because as you well know, David, you know, I come in for a meeting, I come in for a dialogue, I come in for a conversation, maybe it's an hour, maybe it's four hours, maybe even it's eight hours at one time, but it's still in and out. And I do the best that I can to understand the inner workings of the organization, but I'm not there all the time to find many opportunities. Uh, I can only see snapshots of those opportunities. Yeah, I've often told people as a consultant, if they want the real work, it's really expensive because I'm going to be there every day. That's true. That's true. And so in that context, I try to really leverage both the HR team internally and, and the other leaders that I'm working with internally, because it's important for them to understand the priority, to grasp it, to understand their behaviors, to understand the things that they need to do, because they are really in the day-to-day -day of it. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, so as a consultant, I work with them, whereas as an HR leader, I was in the middle of it to see it too. So really, it's going from having the authority to do it and being in there to That's right. having the influence, but also seeing the, uh, what I call the uncle or aunt perspective, that mm -hmm. I see the kid grow up because I only get to visit him every month, mm -hmm. as opposed to living with them real time, yeah. where you don't actually see the growth necessarily. That's right. And so that's, that's a nice uncle and aunt perspective. When you're the parent, you're there every day. Um, and you're, you also see a variety of priorities. So as an HR leader, I saw a variety of priorities. And, and every day, quite frankly, I'm deciding what's going to be the most important thing I'm going to push today because I can't do it all. I can't, not only can't I um, uh, do it all in the context of my work, but I can't bring up every issue to them as you've got to do this and you've got to do that. Okay? I've, so I have to balance the priorities. And, and what's the biggest issue I need to reflect to them today that they need to take action on versus as a consultant, it is the only priority. But then again, I'm not there on a on kind of a regular, consistent basis. So, And it's the only priority for you. That's true. Because of the work you're doing, which is, it, I mean, it, even that's interesting because how did you balance internally and very large automotive organization mm -hmm. that, that idea of, uh, you may have had all of these priorities, but then you put them forward and you see people cast mm -hmm. it down the list. So mm -hmm. it suddenly became the 15th priority of 10. Mm -hmm. how, how did you feel over that? How did you work through that? Yeah. So obviously, you know, in my role, there were always things that I thought, well, this should be number one, number two, number three, number four priority. But I'm working with a group of leaders and I have to balance their interests and their concerns. Okay. And so quite frankly, if I saw that a priority I thought should be number two was really number 10 in their minds, either I had to find a way to drive its importance up, okay? Now, that, that means I wasn't necessarily saying, hey, John, you've mentioned John before as kind of a, a you know, the standard guy. Okay? I think there's more, uh, more Fortune 500 CEOs called John than there are women. Probably, probably. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But I couldn't just say, hey, John, this has got to be number two instead of number 10. What I had to do instead was find the right business imperative so that John would want to make it number two instead of number 10. So, so also, it wasn't just me as the HR leader and also me as the Black female, okay, saying, you've got to do this, you've got to do that. I needed John to take it as his idea.
all right? So it might be, here's a problem in the organization. And one of the ways that we might solve this problem in the organization is if this priority were number two instead of number 10. So, so it was things like that. So, and you, you raised that. How many times did you find yourself raising one of those issues and you really had uh, mythical John look at you as if to say, oh, here comes the black woman again? I can't even remember. Are you kidding? <laughs> I mean, let's say across 30 years in corporate America, I can't even remember. All right. Now, the other thing I will say is as, as, as you are in roles, as we are in these roles, we learn to balance, juggle, maneuver, and, and, I, and I don't mean maneuver in, a, in a, a negative way, but just, you know, manage what we do on a day-to-day basis, all right? I mean, let's face it, I may come into my, you know, my, my boss John's office with, you know, kind of a list of, of topics that we really need to talk about, but, but he may have another priority that takes precedence. Or the way, you know, the first two conversations are going, I know I'm never going to get to the third one, which is one that's really uh, important to me as well. So you really have to uh, be flexible, be adaptable. Um, there, are, there are many times when I saw issues, and, and this is whether it was diversity or any other issue, I saw issues that I thought were really important that we needed to do something specifically about. And I might have brought it up in a certain way and, you know, didn't get the level of engagement that I wanted. And I, and I literally just had to wait. And, and that became an art form almost, okay? All right, so it's wait until something is really going on where I can bring it back again. And it's like, oh, well, that's a great idea. We really should do that. Yeah, I know I said that three weeks ago, but it wasn't time yet. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, you're really talking about focusing on the war, not the battle. Yes, that's and, uh, absolutely it. You may absolutely. say, I'm losing this battle, but so let me withdraw tactfully so that then I can better prepare to continue. That's right. War. Because if I don't keep the right relationship going, then I'm losing the war. Okay. Right. If I keep the right relationship going, then the leaders that I'm working with are open. They're receptive. Um, you know, I'm viewed as, uh, you know, uh, part of the solution instead of kind of just bringing problems forward that they may not be ready to handle, even if I have some, some particular ideas, but at the same time, it's not like I can bring a, a package solution tied up with a bow. We've got to work through it together, okay? I have some ideas, I have some thoughts always, but we've got to work through it together because I've got to hear from them and they've got to own it and recognize it. And we've got to collaborate together on the right solution. Because, I mean, the other thing you raise is uh, withdrawing your ego. So if uh, Mythical John says the following week, this is an idea I've come up with, you don't scream and shout and say, hang on a minute, I said that last week and you ignored me. It's a matter of good. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh, what a wonderful idea, John. What a great yeah. idea. And it doesn't matter who owns it. We're moving the ball down the field. We're... That's right. That's right. Yeah, you're right. Ego has to get out the way. And then as a black female, I mean, let's face it. I bring, I bring that to every conversation I have. And also in all of those conversations, I'm always constantly assessing, are they responding to me in the way they're responding because I'm a black woman? Mm-hmm. Okay. So, you know, one of the things, one of the critical success factors is having white male allies, having the mythical John be an ally for this topic as well, all right? I mean, I can go so much further, so much faster. We can go so much further and faster together if we're working together on it, okay? But if the leader is threatened by it, doesn't understand its importance, 
um, then then we're not, we're not going to get anywhere. Um, you know, you mentioned uh, uh, in another conversation we had the frame of unconscious, or I'm sorry, conscious. Yeah, I, I think since George Floyd, we've seen a lot of white people become consciously incompetent, yes. as opposed to the previously they were unconsciously incompetent. Yes, yes. So at least with conscious incompetence, that's something we can all work with, all right? When I admit that I don't know and I'm willing to learn, then we can engage in conversation. We can learn together, all right? And it's not even a matter that you have to agree with me and everything that I say. But it is important to learn more about the topic, learn more about what the issues are, listen to me with respect, listen to other people's perspectives with respect, okay? Uh, one of the fantastic things, unfortunately, that has come out of you know, the George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and all the other um, the senseless killings is so many more people of color are writing about their experiences today. Not something that happened five years ago or 30 years ago, but their experiences today in corporate America. And it's helping these business leaders understand, wow, you know, it, it is still, something like this is still going on around us because, you know, um, a, 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 someone will look at me when I tell about my experience and say, you, uh, I didn't think that you were, you know, dealing with that. I didn't think that that was going on with you. And it makes them really stop and think about um, either their behaviors or the behaviors of others around them or it's just things that people do and don't realize, you know, it's, it's mm -hmm. microaggressions. I mean, I've, I've had someone talk to me about, you know, she got in the elevator with her coworkers and they were admiring her new hairdo and everybody wanted to touch her <laughs> hair. And uh, that's a, that's a microaggression, you know, no one, no one likes that. Okay. Yeah. That's, I was reading about that recently. I, how many times you've been described as articulate and then rolled your eyes. That's another excellent example. I've had, it, it, it's interesting, I've had uh, people apologize both to me and to others in the past couple of months because they, they, they became woke, you know, as, as the term is now, and realized that that's, an, that's offensive. And they basically, you know, came to me or, or I've heard them go to others and say, please forgive me, I didn't, you know, mean to offend or, you know, et, et cetera. Yep. And so, you know, no hard feelings. We just appreciate that recognition, so. Yeah, well, that's the challenge of how do they move from conscious incompetence to conscious competence that's right. uh, now. So, um, and, and I think you're seeing a lot of that where people are recognizing that and bringing up the apology for the behavior and then looking mm -hmm. for help. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. on that note, you've been working both uh, internally and externally now. What are some of the success factors that you see to create a truly EDI organization uh, organization and culture? Yeah, that, that's a good question. I think one of the key success factors is what's the why, all right? So as an organization wants to move forward in this, why do they want to do it? Is it just because George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and, and others died? Is it just because it's the thing to do to, you know, write a statement and, you know, make sure you have a chief diversity officer? Or is it because they really feel a deep moral imperative that we've got to change our society? We've got to treat people with equity. We've got to treat people better, all right? That there is no difference just because of the color of our skin and things like that, okay? If they have a deep moral imperative as a driving factor, that's, that's one of the reasons I um, uh, certainly admire uh, the efforts of the CEO of uh, uh, PwC, 
Um, there's an organization called the CEO Action Coalition also that is bringing CEOs together who are committed to addressing diversity, equity, and inclusion. But having the right why that then provides the leadership drive and support that is needed to really bring about change. Mm-hmm. So that's so have the right why, make sure that we're, we're committing to this. And, uh, and then what's, what's the next step after that? We've got the why. Yeah, so then it's be, being willing to make an investment, okay? Now, notice the word I choose, it's investment. It's not spending money or it's not just resources of you know, time, talent and, and all like that, okay? Um, but it's making an investment in the future of your company because your company is only as good as your people. You know, I don't care what, what product or what service you provide, your company is only as good as the people who are there. So if you are willing to invest in developing and growing your people and bringing in a variety of perspectives, see, one of the reasons companies fail or companies struggle even is because they get a very homogeneic perspective of how to run the business and how to succeed and how they make decisions and what breadth of options they consider, all right? But when you are open to greater diversity of perspectives from people who come from a variety of different backgrounds, who come from a variety of different approaches, okay, um, that makes a key difference in the outcomes of your business, right? right? And it's not just having diverse people in the business, it's having a culture where you really uh, pull in those perspectives and where you want people to speak up and you want people to contribute and you want people to, to debate uh, diverse perspectives on business problems, okay? That's what brings better outcomes. So one thing is to create more diversity. The second thing is to value it truly yes. as an integral part of the organization. Yes. Uh, <clears throat> I was having a conversation with someone recently that was you know, talking about the CDI issue and they were saying, you know, they, they're trying to do it and they get a couple of interns from uh, Kettering every year and, and they never seem to get anybody but white guys and um and when i was sharing this example with uh, a few other edi folks somebody just said well have they thought about a historically black college university as, as mm-hmm. you know, tapping into them rather than just kettering and it was mm-hmm. like oh <laughs> that's a, a completely sensible question that most people have missed mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. of their uh, again that uh, unconscious incompetence that they were in. Yes, yes. And then even to go many steps beyond that, it's not just, oh, now I'll go to uh, a FAMU or a Howard University or whatever, okay? It's what types of experiences do those people find if, if and when they even accept an internship or a co-op assignment at your company, okay? Yep. Is it just, well, I'll, I'll get them in the door and that's it? No, you have to make sure you have an inclusive environment that values diversity, where people don't um, look at, you know, certain employees and say, well, you know, because maybe you're a white male, you're capable of this because you're a black male or a black female or a white female, you know, you're capable of something different. How how are you treating them? How are you being inclusive with them? Um, You know, how are, how are you valuing their ideas? Okay. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's the whole, you know, kind of birth to death cycle, I'll call it, of when, when you're first in, approaching a prospective employee, even what's on your website, okay? Um, you know, I can't tell you how many times. Now, people look, look at different things, but when, I, when I'm researching companies and I look on their website, I always look at their leadership. 
and I look at the leadership pictures. Is there any diversity there? Okay, on the board, on the you know, on the executive committee, on the officers, is there any diversity there? Yep. Okay, you know, it when I don't see any, it says something loud and clear. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and. Uh, don't go looking at our website anytime soon, and please, because we're trying to work on that. But yes, you're absolutely right. It's it's something that, especially in the leadership ranks, uh, when you're faced with a, a ten white guys called John, it sends a message. And yeah. I, I, I talked to Carlos Rangel in episode 15 about diversity in the asset management industry, and one of the things he was talking about was the lack of mentoring and coaching for. Uh, people of color and uh, come mm -hmm. into that world whereas mm -hmm. you know if that white person comes in they find it either in their family network or somewhere else uh, and so making a conscious effort to provide mentoring coaching for absolutely people of color as they enter the organization is another demonstration of uh we're not just saying it we're acting on it yeah you know there is a and, and I, lo I love the book White Fragility by Robin D'Angelo and, and the way she describes it. And I'll, these are, I'll paraphrase in my words, okay? But walking into a room as a Black female, okay? I always know, you know, am I one of few, one of many? You know, I'm always feeling the demographics of a room when I walk into it. I'm always thinking about how are people responding to me as I walk into the room, okay? Um, so the fact that I'm a woman, the fact that I'm a black woman is ever present with me. Uh, but the way Robin D'Angelo describes it, people who are white don't have that sense of their race. Okay. And I, I don't want to, I don't want to put words in anyone's mouth, but the way she describes it, people who are white don't have that same sense of their race. They just are. Okay. Whereas for me, I have a sense of it. Now, I will tell you, I live in a pretty nice upscale neighborhood, okay? Um, and I like to walk, but I am a 59-year-old black woman and I'm still very conscious of myself walking in my neighborhood, which does have some diversity, but these days you never know what's gonna happen. And so I'm always trying to make sure that, you know, if I walk by somewhere, someone I'm pleasant, I speak, I wave, um, I don't try to, you know, look, suspicious or dangerous or, you know, and I'm a 59 year old black woman. Mm -hmm. And I have, and this is something that I am still conscious of. And that's a shame, that's a shame. Yeah, I mean, absolutely right that uh, I walk into a room and uh, there's no issue. And then I open my mouth and actually I get the opposite because I'm living in North America and people then suddenly say, oh, wow. Yes. <laughs> so it's the extreme privilege Mm -hmm. uh, which is the complete opposite of what you're talking about. So mm -hmm. I, I, I appreciate where that goes. And it's the, and we were talking in the preamble beforehand about this idea of going from uh, unconscious incompetence to conscious incompetence is, is still a step. Mm -hmm. It may not be the right step or the total step yet, but at least it's a step in the right direction. It's, it's a step. That's that right. seems to have happened in the last six months. So. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm conscious of our, our time as well, and I um, I could talk to you all day about this, sure. uh, but I also wanted to give you the opportunity. I know uh, you have an exciting project on the, the cards at the moment. Yes, yes, yes. It's, it's, a, it's been a labor of love, but I have a new book that will hopefully be published um, by the end of this year. 
and it's called Leader Vantage, Seven Essential Steps to Peak Leadership. And it's a collection of uh, writings on leadership on seven themes uh, woven into uh, a very uh, real story of leadership challenges that people face. And so uh, I talk about seven particular keys that give leaders an advantage, and that is purpose, their perspective, their values, their traits, their behaviors, tools, and ideas. And uh, it's a great read. It's one of those where each chapter is probably about three or four pages, and you should read no more than one chapter a day <laughs> because there's, there's questions for you to think about, questions to challenge you. So just kind of read one chapter a day. I always say that about Brene Brown's work is read a chapter at a time and then pause for a while. That's right. Pause and think about that. So this yes. is the second book? This is my second book. And my first book is The Call to Faith-Centered Leadership, Trans Transformational Lessons for Leaders in Challenging Times. So both are available on my website, PriscillaArchangel.com, and also on Amazon. The newest one will be on Amazon as soon as it's um, as soon as it's published. But you can you can pre-order on my website, or you can go to Amazon once it's published. But yes, yeah, we were trying to get it, hoping it was published before. I know, so I, I know. But maybe, maybe we'll have to come back and talk about that at a later. That, that's right. COVID-inspired delays. So. Yeah. So, so if I, I switch back, I know you you had a couple of principles: the the why and the creating the mm -hmm. culture to welcome people. Um, without running out of time too quickly. It sounded like you had a few more to add to that. Yeah, sure. So one important thing is having white allies. So David, you know, as, as we were kind of leading up to this conversation, um, you asked me, you're, in, you're asking me some really good questions, okay? But you asked the question, what do I expect from white guys? Yeah, and I got the answer I didn't really want. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, if I'll just say now, as I thought about that, my first, and maybe it was reflective an reflexive answer, but it was nothing all right and i was i was sad as i thought about that i, I was really sad but it was a it was response born from experience of you know that's kind of what it's been like okay i mean sometimes it was uh you know some level of concern but you know it wasn't like i have felt like as a black woman i've gotten a lot all right but ultimately what i want is white guys, the Johns, to be allies. I want them to move from conscious incompetence to conscious competence and beyond, okay? Um, I want to be able to have these conversations. And I will say, I've had more conversations in the past four or five months or richer conversations with uh, people who are not my race, with white people, than I've ever had in decades. And it's been absolutely wonderful, okay? But to want to know, to want to learn, to want to grow and to become an ally in this together, okay? Um, I and most black people I know we don't want any special considerations. We just want to be treated with equity, okay? And so we need allies to bring, to bring additional light to this. And so that's what I, that's why I love when I see CEOs stepping up in their companies because they are the ones who will drive change in their companies too. That's what we need. Okay. Priscilla Archangel, Dr. Priscilla Archangel, thank you very much for joining us today. And uh, I look forward to uh, picking up the book and maybe we'll have you back to talk about that. Uh, but thank yes. you for sharing your experience and inspiration and, um, and stay healthy. Thank you so much, David. You've been listening to the Humanity Leadership Podcast. I'm David Wheatley. 
And we're brought to you by the book, What Great Teams Do Great, available now at all good bookstores. Thanks to Brian Spencer and Finkel for the music. Please share any feedback and suggestions. I'm available through humanity.com. And uh, go to iTunes, like, subscribe, and leave us a review so that other people can find us. In the meantime, until next time we meet, stay healthy.